My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life, and you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times, and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. If you've been listening for a while, then you'll remember my fantastic interview with world-leading coach Dr. Carol Kaufman, who co-authored a new book, Real-Time Leadership, Find Your Winning Moves When the Stakes Are High. It's just out and has sold fantastically well in its first few months on the shelves. Whether you're making a split-second decision when your business is hit sideways or finding the best strategy to navigate business-critical long-term circumstances, how can you be at your best in the most crucial moments? Well, Carol's co-author on real-time leadership was none other than today's guest, David Noble. Where Carol's background was heavily in the art and science of coaching, David is an expert in leadership and strategy, and a more recent convert to the coaching world, with over 20 years at the top echelons of global finance and consulting institutions, including Morgan Stanley, Carney, and Oliver Wyman. These days, he's the founder of leadership and strategy consulting firm View Advisors, a senior advisor to recruiter Egon Zender, the Institute of Coaching and Oliver Wyman Group. He was named by Thinkers50 as one of the world's top coaches and is a member of the Marshall Goldsmith MG100 Group, many of whom have previously graced this stage, of course. I love how the value in coaching leaders comes from such a variety of perspectives, and I'm looking forward to hearing how David leverages his experience to help senior leaders be their best at work. And of course, to hear about the unlock moments that helped him find clarity about the path ahead. David Noble, it is my very great pleasure to welcome you to the Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. It's great to be here. I'm oh, delighted that you accepted the invitation. So we're going to come on and talk about your new book, of course, but I'm going to start with a question that I often begin these conversations with. Where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you've become today? Oh, great question. Um, most recently, I think you can look to the depths of the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. I'd had a long career as an operating executive, and I'd been fortunate enough to work for organizations that really cultivated what they called general athletes. So the ability to try many, many vastly different jobs and see how well you do before you get the next job. Uh, and then subsequently a career and strategy. And there was a moment at that time where I just felt that I had spent my whole life going bigger, stronger, faster, higher, more, and it just wasn't doing it for me anymore. So there was, a, a, there was just a lack of fulfillment. And when I looked back and tried to find and unpack some of the underlying themes of my life, I found that the things that stuck with me most were the times where I had an ability to help people, whether it was to find great people, to develop them. And if for any reason I couldn't offer them uh, more in their career to help them on their way and to be lifelong friends, 
and also to stand up for people who are being unfairly treated in an organization. And that kind of led me to coaching. So in a, in a flash, I do a lot of things by impulse, which I don't always recommend. <laughs> in a flash, I decided that I was going to be a coach and bootstrap my way into coaching. And bring me back into that moment when you realized that the way you were thinking about progression and the way you were thinking about maybe success was not really the path that was right for you. What, what was happening for you in that time? Well, I think my life had been marked by sort of ever-increasing roles and responsibilities and the ability to have impact either as a direct operating executive or as a strategist on a lot of things. So, you know, there in, in finance, we have uh, these things called tombstones, which basically mark massive deals that are done. So I had a whole set of tombstones <laughs> and I was finding that, you know, whereas the first one or two gave me a lot of fulfillment and, and personal happiness, um, the, the next 10 and the next 10 and the next 10 were just in diminishing returns. So the point was, um, I could be, um, accountable for a massive transaction or a transformation of an organization. And it just, it wasn't doing anything for me. So I knew something was, was vastly wrong. And, and what was the, do you remember one that stuck with you that, that you think that was when I knew something needs to change? I kept putting myself in ever increasing positions of risk and it was just as a personal challenge. And there was inevitably a time where, um, you weren't going to succeed. Um, I don't think I came at that point in time, but in order to, in order to sort of deal with these increasing, my increasing appetite for risk, I had to go through every wall and draw on every ounce of resilience I had uh, to the point where it was um, basically going to finish me. <laughs> so that was the moment, I think, where it was just like, okay, this, this has got to stop. This is, you're just doing more risk-seeking for risk-seeking and it is going to finish you. It's really interesting. And, and there's something about, I mean, the finance consulting world, but I think it's the same in the corporate world as well, that there's a perception that as you become more senior, it becomes ever better. But that's not always the case for the experience of leaders going through that. Sometimes it can feel, you say, it feels more risk, more compromise. What, what, when you're working with leaders today, do you, do you see that same journey that they're going on that you experienced in your own career? I think everyone's got their own journey, but I see some common um, aspects to every senior leader. So one is that um, the pressure is crushing and it's only getting worse because if you look at, I think Accenture measured uh, what they call the global disruption index, um, which is based on macroeconomic volatility, geopolitical changes, technology and the like. And they did a, a measurement between 2012 and 2017 which showed that the index, while it was high, had only gone up about 4% over that five-year period. Then they measured it again in the end of last year for the latest five-year period, and it had doubled. So it's like facing that kind of uncertainty, volatility, that escalating trajectory of volatility, um, that's crushing to have to deal with. So I think that that is often the case. And as a senior leader, you're often alone. Because while you will have trusted advisors, in many cases, it's hard to see the reality of all the agendas around you and whether you're actually getting objective advice or not. So I think there are common things to deal with that. Plus just the, the burnout of the last three years of leaders having to be the, um, 
you know, empathizers in chief and the comforters in chief, as well as the inspirational leaders, as well as transform their organization. So I think there are all those things that are pretty much common to every senior leader today. And I think about that kind of military training uh, model where they make you run up the hill and back down the hill and they never tell you when the exercise is going to finish. So, you know, you're going all out because you think this is the last time you're doing it. And then they say, turn around and do it again. For a lot of leaders, I think, that, you know, they, they talk about this idea that, that they're in a sprint race, but the, the finish line of the race is getting further and further away. So that drain on, on you physically and emotionally is, is really striking and, and unusual in these times. That's a great analogy. And that's why probably with at least half the leaders that I work with now, we spend quite a bit of time on what their personal meaning and purpose is going to be, or in another way of putting it, what they want their contribution to be. Because if they can really define that, the essence of the thing that uh, makes them fulfilled, that's the North Star that they can go for. And it's also something when things go wrong that they can call up and remind themselves of why they're going to work every day. So it's a great source of, of resilience and energy too. And in this moment of clarity that you had in, in pivoting from ever more tombstones, ever more deals, ever more risk to thinking differently about what's important to you, what do you land on in terms of how you think about what's really important to you? Well, I actually reflected. So when I did my bootstrap exercise to be a coach, I first did a lot of work on myself um, with a lot of advisors and reading a lot, trying a lot of different things. And one of the things that I started to explore early on was my own meaning and purpose. So why am I actually here? What, what's my contribution going to be? And it's changed over 12 years or so since I first did the exercise. And I think that's good because we do tend to evolve and grow as people. Uh, but what my purpose is now is to help others get to clarity and personal growth where and when they most need it. So that's, that's what I'm around for. And then I also have this practice because I spent my life doing this work around, you know, highly risky, highly uncertain circumstances. It's to create this kind of alchemy for turning risk and uncertainty into opportunity. And then also knowledge into wisdom. And the latter is really hard because um, we can know something intellectually. You can know that um, if you're being coached that, oh, yeah, this actually makes sense. It's the right thing to do. But translating that into the wisdom of acting on it and embedding it is magical. And I don't know whether this is an answerable question, but do you have a sense of why that purpose is important to you? I think it goes, if I went back to that examination of my time as, uh, well, as a kid, as an operating executive leader, as a strategist, um, those things that did resonate were me, to me were being in service of other people. So um, there was a time where my career was just all about me. So I was the little star that people existed um, and surrounded me with their support. Um, and then that that moved um, through as another unlock moment. I was working with, I was being mentored by probably the most senior and best banker in the country in Canada where I grew up and started work. And I asked him why he was spending so much time with me. And he just said, it's the right thing to do. And you're going to be a future leader. So I'm helping you and you're going to help others. And that was just, that was an aha moment. Like I could, I remember sitting in his big glass office and <laughs> thinking that like that is, 
that's got to be me. What, what did that tell you when he said, that's just the right thing to do? I know it was just like something was lifted. So it was like, um, you know, in the work around immunity to change where you've got this worldview um, and, but your worldview is limited and then something bigger comes along and you see that your old worldview is contained in that, but there's something bigger. And I think my old worldview was I'm a subject matter expert. I stand for achievement, excellence, um, but there is something bigger and that's me being connected to something else and how I'm going to be connected to the bigger world is to help others. And in a very specific way, I mean, it's helping them be better leaders. I really like your, your thinking about helping leaders in uncertain times connect with purpose. And I feel I have an emerging understanding of this whole idea of the unlock moment. The more I talk to people about theirs and talk to experts like, like you and Carol about you know, how, how leaders in general think about finding their purpose. And I think one of my hypotheses that, that is kind of emerging at the moment is that a lot of people think about purpose and they feel like they've got to their purpose, but they haven't necessarily dug that deep to find it. So they can write it on a piece of paper and they can tell other people what it is, but it isn't really what fundamentally drives them. What, what's your perspective on how deep you have to dig to really find your true purpose? Well, I think it's been a it's been a process of discovery for me. So I look at I, I take a design thinking perspective on purpose. So I started out with like version 1.0, if you like, and thought that this is a good working model. And then I started to test it and challenge it and see where it was working, where it wasn't working. And I kept refining it. And I think that's a good practice for people to do. I think it's, it's all too easy to say something superficial, like, oh, I just want to help others. It's like, well, what, what does that mean? What does that mean for your own user's manual? Let's kind of unpack that and go very granular. So there's partly it's that process of discovering. And then partly it's being honest with yourself about whether you're living that purpose or not. And the last thing, which I, I kind of discovered because I thought it was all about purpose. <laughs> and then I realized, yeah, I could be fulfilling my purpose all day long. So I could help others get to clarity and growth where they need it. And I'd have a terrible life because you know what? I've got other stuff to do in my life too. I've got my own interests. I've got hobbies. I've got my health. I've got my family. I've got my community. It's not all about just living my purpose each and every moment. It's actually living that purpose within a context of a, a whole and balanced life. I love it. So since I spoke to Carol earlier in the year, the book Real-Time Leadership has come out. What's that journey been like over the last few months? Oh, my gosh. It's been, uh, it's been great. So we started... Um, events, face-to-face -face and virtual events um, and media interviews probably in mid-February. So it's going on, you know, three and a half or four months now. And um, the process has been wonderful. We've, uh, we started in the United States and we did multiple tours across um, various cities, mostly East Coast and, and Texas. And then we took it on the road to be based in the UK for a couple of months and then we're on the continent in many different places. So it's been, it's been great. So we've had people come up to us and say, I think two things that really stuck in both of our minds. One was, wow, this is practical. So that is the highest praise that you could give to Carol and me that it's like, oh, it's actually something that you can use. Um, and in some cases, because what we're what we're inviting the reader to do is to 
be a real-time leader all the time, which is an aspirational kind of thing um, to be able to be in the moment all the time and be at your best self. Uh, but it's an invitation that uh, many have found inspirational, or so they've told us. So it's been it's been a wonderful ride so far. And which one of you convinced the other one to to join the team? I think that we had uh, it was a long time in the making. So we've been working together since 2015, um, doing various things, including two on one coaching, which is kind of a breakthrough that that we we developed. And then around 2017, we were at a whiteboard one day um, in New York, and we just mapped out all the frameworks that we've been applying. And so I think we stopped at number 125 or something. And it was trying to uh, map out all of these things, which are quite connected but still separate um, streams of thought and evidence based frameworks. So the usual kind of things from uh, neuroscience, psychology, strengths-based positive psychology, behavioral science, and the like, but also um, more hard-edged analytics and strategy. So strategy, corporate strategy, public sector strategy, military strategy, uh, and the like, and trying to unify those things. So when we had all those frameworks on the whiteboard, we tried to distill them. And that was the genesis of the MOVE model. So we actually mapped them all into MOVE. And then um, I had been anxious to write a book. And um, Carol had her own book that she was working on and wanted to work on. And uh, I had invited her, um, well, probably it took 18 months. And then at some point in time, I said, all right, well, um, either you go with me or I'm writing the book myself. And she said, all right, I'm going to sacrifice my book for now. And let's join up because the promise is really good. And it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful partnership. So I think it, it was a good decision. And in your book, you describe this new framework, MOVE, equipping you to slow down high stakes situations before they speed you up. Tell us more about that, that framework and how it comes to life. What we found is that uh, great leaders that we work with, um, given all the disruption that's coming at us continuously, it's like everybody pretty much seeks to make the most of every moment uh, because we don't have a lot of time on this planet. Well, whatever decision you're making in the short term, longer term, or whatever goal you're working towards. So most leaders make the most of every moment by relying on their deep pattern recognition. So if they see A happen and they see B happen, then they kind of instinctively know that C is the thing to do. And that reliance on your reflex can make sense in, in some cases, um, but there are some drawbacks. So the first drawback is that repeating the same thing over and over again doesn't make you a, a better leader. Even if you're in a stable environment, you're not growing as a leader. And the second is when you're involved in wildly disruptive things like we have been over the last few years. And those can be novel types of crisis, or they can be novel types of opportunity, like of a scale and scope that you haven't seen before. Um, if you apply that old playbook, if you apply your reflexes, um, that can lead you into trouble and take you in exactly the wrong direction. So what we thought was, it's important to know how and when to overcome your reflexes. So the first premise of this is, you have to be able to create a little bit of space. I think Carol probably talked about this, but there's a great Viktor Frankl quote 
where uh, he says that between um, stimulus and response, there's a space, and in that space lies your freedom. So it's a freedom to choose so that you don't have to reflex, but you can choose a response. So it's about how do you find that space, and then how do you step into that space using uh, to do peak performance, which is the move model. So that's basically that's the, the premise of it. It's really interesting. It, it resonates with me in the retail space because, you know, I started working in retail about 10 years ago when it was the beginning of what we called in the UK the retail apocalypse. And I know in the US, you know, had a, gone through a similar time, which is a massive growth of digital disruption to footfall of physical stores and uh, discounting and a whole variety of different pressures on the industry, which has left, led to very, very widespread um, transformation and, and, and disruption to that industry. In an industry led typically by people that have been in it for their whole lives. So really challenging that standard playbook, which for decades and decades and decades, broadly the, the, the playbook of retail was consistent, which is if you launch a good store in a good location, well-operated, well-run with good product at a good margin and you price it appropriately, you are likely to make money. And if you make money in that one store, then you can open a few stores and there are many stores. And there's, it's, it's no surprise that many of the um, Sunday Times rich list or, or equivalents in the US are from a retail background. And suddenly, all of these retail leaders were deploying that playbook and going, the customers don't respond like that anymore. The customers are not coming. They're not buying. They're standing in my store and ordering on Amazon um, at a discount. Um, and by the way, Amazon's price is lower than even what I can get it at cost. So it really resonates seeing in, in that industry, and, and there are so many others. How do you help people you know, that are, that are long-time, very experienced leaders to change their thinking in that frankle space between stimulus and response? What do they actually have to do differently to, do, to make the change? Great question. Well, in, in a transformation like you're talking about in retail, and I've advised um, one of the largest vertically integrated retail apparel multi-brand companies um, on that space. And, you know, they were very much in the groove of reflex and they used their reflexes to finally hone their execution machine. So they were all about the next quarter or the current quarter. They were all about uh, operational excellence and to the exclusion of everything else. But when a problem would come up, they would move so quickly, they would um, shoot first and ask questions later, basically. So it would be kind of fire, ready, aim. <laughs> and so we had to kind of flip that um, on its head. But the, the typical way of um, getting out of the reflex is to be very conscious about naming what your goals are. So that's the first step. And we often think we're very clear about our goals, like, oh, I need to get into that meeting and I need to get this capital expenditure approved. Uh, but often that's not the right goal. So if you just step back and ask yourself, is this really the most important thing right now? You may find, maybe it is, but you may find that, no, I think what I need to do is make sure that I go and have every voice heard around the table so that I can craft a better recommendation and get this through next time. So that's the external kind of what do you need to get done? Is it a financial goal? Is it a decision? Is it a merger to complete? Whatever it is. But there are two other dimensions in goals that we're not consciously aware of. The second dimension is more of the inner. And that's who do you want to be while you're leading as a person? Do you want to be that person who is um, listening and patient? 
two of the factors, by the way, that most CEOs say that they need to work on. <laughs> do you want to be generous? Do you want to have perspective? Do you want to create belonging for your people? So who do you want to be while you're pursuing those, um, those goals in your operating environment? And then the third aspect um, is now to do that, um, to pursue my goals, to be who I want to be, and to do this through other people to unlock them. I need to be able to relate to them in a way that they can be related to. So I need to be agile around my interpersonal relationships. So just naming those things is one way to create space because it just gives you literally a second to step back and think, okay, what is it that I'm really doing here? What's most important? And am I really seeing this in a three-dimensional way and not just a one-dimensional way about, oh, it's all about my goal. The next thing is, once you've got the how, the, the what, which is the goals, then it's about the how. And that's what we call the O in the move model, which is the options generator. And for us, because so many things are being thrown at us all the time, so many obstacles and curveballs, it's not enough these days for a leader to find a way to a win. You have to find a backup and a backup to a backup and more. So um, work in the literature by Snyder and Lopez um, called hope theory is the premise that the more viable pathways you have forward, the more likely you are, you are to succeed in the goal. So if you've only got one viable pathway forward, you're less likely than if you've got four or five. So we want to work with you to create these options so that you always have four or five pathways forward. So it's not always your default option. It's not always the thing that you've been moving in the groove. And we help you get beyond that by seeing what these other options are and then helping you step into them if that's going to be optimal for the situation. And when you're talking about that, I'm imagining leaders that I've worked with in the past, and I'm imagining some of them that will embrace the ability to change, you know, with some guidance and support through whether it's coaching or mentoring, or whatever it is. And there'll be other leaders who, even with that information, will still struggle to not default to the way they've always been um, what are the characteristics of the leaders who are able to embrace new ways compared with the leaders who, with the greatest best will in the world, are unable to embrace new ways? Or do you think everybody's able to embrace it? Uh, I think everybody is able to embrace it. And for that, I would draw on Boyatzis and intentional change theory. So there is a way for us, if we set an intention, if we set a vision for how we want to be, uh, and an intention to do that. And then um, there's a process around, well, how do you actually activate that intention? So suppose I just want to be more patient. It's like, okay, I, I really care about that. How do I activate that in the moment? How do I try these little micro behaviors that will get me a little bit better over time? And then how do I keep practicing until I embed that? So I think that's, you know, there is a process for everybody. Now, there are a couple of um, other factors that determine whether you will change. So one is intrinsically, what's your motivation? So on a scale of one to 10, if you say you want to work on something and 10 is very high and it's an eight, uh, good luck. You're not going to work on it because there's so many other things crowding out um, what we have to work on. So I think it's, it's important to have activate that intentional change theory in the context of something you're really motivated to work on. The other sort of limiting or unlimiting factor is your human potential. So the way I think about it, human potential is driven by four factors. And you have to have, uh, we've all got these, but just in very, very various doses. So the first is curiosity. 
So are you really interested in learning about yourself, about new frameworks, about getting positive feedback and constructive change? If yes, you're more likely to, to change. Um, insight. So despite being curious about a bunch of stuff, can you actually do something with that that creates value for you or your team or your organization? So insight matters. Then engagement, the more you're able to connect with people and draw on them for support um, and mobilize them, the more likely you are to change. Last one is just pure determination and grit. So if you're really motivated to do something and you're going to go through any wall to do that, you can do it. But those are characteristics that I think will um, determine whether you'll be successful. That's fascinating. And we sit here in 2023 with hopefully the worst of the pandemic behind us and lots of leaders going, you know, I really hope that we can get back to something approximating to what life was like pre-pandemic. What are things that you think leaders should try and hold on to in the different ways of thinking and approaching problems that they had to do in the pandemic because of circumstance? What, what should we try and keep a hold of from that time? Well, I think that, you know, a good chunk of the world's leadership um, pivoted quite quickly. Um, some played catch up more than they probably should have. But what I think that leaders need to do going forward is um, get ahead of the curve, anticipate what's next. I can recall a year ago, over a year ago, I was working with a, an executive team and uh, I said, so what's your house view on inflation? They didn't have one. And it's like uh, shocking. It was, it was, inflation wasn't new at that point in time, right? So you've got commodity price volatility, um, geopolitical turmoil, uh, inflation, social change, uh, changing nature of work, you know, the list kind of goes on. But what's next? Because the, this whole idea of reflexing, again, is um, often we'll see a data point that's outside our worldview, and it just doesn't fit. And because it doesn't fit, we ignore it. And then we'll see another data point, and that doesn't fit, and we ignore it. And then you see a third. And by that point in time, if you haven't sort of created the capacity to um, actually cultivate those data points that don't fit and to start to connect the dots, um, you're just going to be playing catch up or at best pivoting quickly forever because there's more stuff coming. So, you know, get on with it. So I think a large part of this is creating the conditions to um, detect, assess and respond to future risks and opportunities. I'm sure you'd be working with lots of senior leaders who feel they don't need coaching they won't value, they won't get benefit from coaching, they haven't got time for coaching. And you've been on both sides of the table. I'm sure you've had times in your career where you felt, I haven't got time for, for this. How do you talk to senior leaders today and, and, and bring to life for them the value in their context of coaching? So Carol and I have a very different philosophy on this. Um, I believe that coaching and advice in general is bought and not sold. And, you know, I spent a good chunk of my life on the sell side, if you will, in financial services and in strategy. And um, I just don't have a lot of time for that anymore. I have a limited amount of time to spread whatever impact I can have. So if you're a skeptic, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm happy to have a conversation with you and try and unlock you. And I'm more willing to invest in you the more I think you have the potential to be a positive force for good in the world. Um, if not, I mean, I just move on. Now, Carol 
louts, um, which you would call, or what others would call toxic leaders, right? Just find something to love in them and then work with them forever. And I just think life's too short. So <laughs> just a philosophical difference. And do you look back in your own career pre-coaching and, and think that there were times when you would have benefited from uh, working with a coach? Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> it was just some, almost none of my coaching is directive. But when I see someone going off a cliff, um, I will stop them from going off a cliff. So I was thinking back, uh, I just did this the other day. Um, there was a, a high potential leader just one step away from the C-suite and his mentor was the CEO of the organization and he was having a regular catch-up meeting. I said, so what, what are you going to talk to him about? And he said, well, it was just this ridiculous business decision that was taken that's impacting, um, impacting my area in a very negative way and I'm going to tackle him on it and basically tell him all the mistakes that have been made. And so I said, yeah, well, that's, that's a strategy. Um, you could do that. Uh, but this is coming off uh, a meeting with his board on Monday. There was an earnings announcement where you took a billion-dollar write-down on Wednesday, and he's had to talk to a lot of customers on Thursday and Friday, and you're going to talk to him on Friday. This is probably the worst week he's ever had. Are you sure that's what you want to say to him? And so I was like, okay. <laughs> and I was thinking back to my own life where I was a high potential leader and I was in this action learning environment, which was a concoction from the G. Crotonville group. And my organization was running through that. And we were, a small team was given this task of making a recommendation on strategy. And so the final day we were in a fishbowl presenting to um, the CEO and the leadership team. And they very politely received our, our strategy and, um, and then said, this is great food for thought and we need to reflect on this. And how does that sit with you? And so I was the most junior member of the team. And I said, um, we were told we were having a decision. This is not a decision. What's the decision? <laughs> I could have really used coaching in that moment. So wonderfully, the, C the chairman was extremely benevolent. <laughs> and he, um, he managed to get through that situation. And I saw him six months later at, uh, at a reception. And he said, how's everything, David? I said, everything's fine. And he looked at me and he said, yes, everything's fine now. So <laughs> if I hadn't had that kind of divine intervention, I would have been, I would have been dead. So I could have really used a coach. Yeah, the chairman of the consulting firm I started um, my training in famously said to one of the managers going into a client meeting, "If you say a word, I will fire you." <laughs> that was his. That was his uh, sort of words of confidence <laughs> before going into the client meeting. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> who Who are the leaders who need to pick up a copy of this book? Um, I think, well, the interesting thing is that when Carol and I, after we wrote the book, we actually figured out that it works in life in general and in families as well. So it's not just for leaders, it's for aspiring leaders, it's for individual contributors. But I, I think it's like, you can feel a range of things for this because the book is designed to help you step into a world which is just escalating in its weirdness and to be more confident about that. So I think the book is for you if you're excited about that. I think the book is for you if you're feeling a little bit lost. I think the book 
is for you if you need a lifeline because things are too chaotic and you need to navigate through the, the lifeline. So I think it's um, I think it's got legs in terms of um, its appeal more broadly. Fantastic. And if people have enjoyed hearing from you today, how can they reach out to you and how can they find out more about the work you do? Great. Well, they can just um, search for a real-time leadership book or they can uh, find me at davidnoble.org. And uh, the landing page for our book is uh, Real-Time Leadership Institute. Um, but of course, that's too long. So we call it rtlinstitute.com. So you can get a copy of the book there as well. Fantastic. The Unlock Moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. For world-leading CEO coach David Noble, it was realizing that people were more important than ever escalating deals and risk. David, we've benefited so much from your wisdom and your ideas. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Unlock Moment. Thank you, Gary. It's a wonderful time. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening and join me again soon here on the Unlock Moment.